Good morning. A pink peace sign in the Capitol for International Women's Day. Tucker Carlson rewrites January 6th. Cop City in domestic terror and the next phase in the Ukraine-Russia war. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday morning, March 9th, 2023. Wednesday was International Women's Day, a radical statement of women's power, as well as a day of red roses of appreciation in much of the world. In the United States, a celebration was held in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington as a group from Code Pink, the anti-war group, laid out a huge pink peace sign and they unfurled banners and pink parasols in the same building where two years ago thousands of pro-Trump protesters had trespassed. Dr. Maha Hilal of the Institute for Policy Studies is an organizer for the group Witness Against Torture, where she's researching the trauma inflicted by the mistreatment of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, where the United States operates a prison for Muslim detainees. She says the West's focus on the oppression of Muslim women is just an excuse for war. When we look at U.S. wars, and Afghanistan is, is a very emblematic example, right? Looking at how Muslim women's oppression has been engulfed in this narrative of why the United States needs to go to war and that Muslim women need to be freed from the terrorists. When we look at gender more broadly, how it's played out in the war on terror, I think one of the, the great examples, an unfortunate example involving war crimes, was that of Abu Ghraib, where the U.S. government specifically in the torture that was suffered by individuals detained at the prison they were using ideas of gender norms in the torture of those in the prison. Dr. Maha Hilal of the Institute for Policy Studies is an organizer for the group Witness Against Torture. She spoke on International Women's Day. We'll return to more news on the war in Ukraine later in the newscast. In national news, on Sunday, police in Atlanta stormed a music festival held by activists protesting Cop City, a police training facility under construction in a forested area of the city near a poor black neighborhood. Twenty-three were arrested and charged under state domestic terrorism laws. The protesters are alleged to have participated in acts of vandalism and arson at a Cop City construction site over a mile away. At a hearing Tuesday, 22 activists were denied bail. A legal observer for the National Lawyers Guild was released on $5,000 bond. A group of faith leaders gathered this week to express solidarity for the protesters still being held in the county jail. The community came out and made public comment for over 17 hours when given an opportunity and said emphatically, no, we don't want your cop city. We don't want more repression of black people. We don't want more polluted air. We don't want less green space in our community. We don't want more policing and terrorizing of black, brown, indigenous bodies in our community. The 23 charged as terrorists join others facing similar charges from earlier protests against the facility. Now 41 protesters face up to 35 years in prison. New York City Attorney Stanley Cohen has defended many people charged under terrorism laws. He says... While there's no domestic terrorism law in the United States, the vast majority of prosecutions have been linked to U.S. involvement in the Middle East. But Cohen adds the real threat is the use of RICO laws in the state of Georgia. 
RICO, racketeering influence corrupt organization laws, can criminalize anyone at a demonstration for the acts of any other participant. It's already been ruled that charismatic speech, which can be interpreted to induce, to attract persons to join FTOs, pure speech is enough to end up with a conviction. FTOs? What was that term? Foreign terrorist organizations. My reference to FTOs is because the only terrorism statutes per se on the books deal with FTOs, and the body of law that is developed deals with prosecution in federal court of FTOs, whether it's individuals, movements, or groups that belong to the list. There is no such designation in the United States at this point. Um, The notion that you can quote-unquote rely upon homeland security to describe an organization as radical, that wishes to intimidate government, and somehow that constitutes domestic terrorism, makes the Alien and Sedition Act look like a jaywalk. They can do what they want. And ultimately, I'm less concerned about, in Georgia in particular, you know, I'm less concerned about that statute. This is the first time it's been applied in six years. Uh, for its constitutionality than I am. And they've been in love in Georgia of late with RICO prosecutions. RICO prosecutions are more problematic. There's not much problems with constitutionality. There's a lower burden of proof. The sentences are every bit as much. The overt act requirement is different. At this point, I suspect Kemp is interested in using the domestic terrorism propaganda for political purposes. Do you, you advise know, protesters to stop throwing Molotov cocktails and using fireworks and in violent uh, tactics that could get other people swept into RICO prosecutions who came for a protest and not for a riot? Right? Uh, you know, what do you think about yeah, that? My position internationally remains the same domestically. Just as my position for 30 years has been, I, I never weigh in to dictate the terms and conditions of resistance on the ground by national liberation movements or people involved in fighting the state. I'm going to take the same position here. I did post on Twitter last night, and people got a lot of laughs out of it. That lawyers, if you're going to a demonstration to deter police, to monitor police, and advise clients, I wouldn't throw a Molotov cocktail. It passes the line, and it's counterproductive. I'm not going to try to dictate the nature and extent of struggle or resistance on any given issue, but there are implications. There are problems. People have to go in with open eyes, and there are consequences, and especially when you're dealing with reactionary government entities such as in Georgia. Keep in mind, the Georgia legislature just passed, and Kemp is about to no doubt sign a law that gives a panel of five the power to fire district attorneys. This has been passed specifically to protect Trump. So you're talking about a state where the political mechanism is designed on the one hand to protect those people that are popular, and on the other hand to persecute and single out and to go overboard against those people that are not popular, especially if they're from out of the state. Are we saying something akin to the civil rights movement when uh, cracks started opening up in the Deep South and uh, there was a lot more conflict as uh, college students and others uh, were flooding down there? The environmental crisis is universal and it applies to everyone in every generation. This forest project certainly has an impact on it. Very few people are admitting it. But I'm not going to draw comparisons with the civil rights struggle at this point of the Deep South or the attack on Jim Crow with what's going on in Atlanta right now. I'm not minimizing the commitment, the principle, and the purpose of those who are opposed to what the police wish to do, which is really, I suspect, at the end of the day, who's getting the money to do this project. I mean, Lord knows, Georgia does not need another police barrack, another police placement, another pistol range, another training. They've got more than enough. There is no need to go into to destroy 100 acres of forestry, especially 
as they did traditionally during Jim Crow, to go into the heart of defined African-American communities, communities of color, and to rip it apart, to break it apart, to divide it. That is an issue that's not getting properly addressed. New York-based civil rights attorney, Stanley Cohen. The $90 million training center aims to train cops in militarized urban warfare. The Atlanta Police Department says it intends to recruit many of the trainees from out-of-state police departments. And more news from Capitol Hill. On Wednesday, Averill Haynes, the director of national intelligence, told the Senate Intelligence Committee the biggest risk facing the United States is China, specifically the Chinese Communist Party. Perhaps needless to say, the People's Republic of China, which is increasingly challenging the United States economically, technologically, politically, and militarily around the world, remains our unparalleled priority. Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, under President Xi Jinping, will continue efforts to achieve Xi's vision of making China the preeminent power in East Asia and a major power on the world stage. Haynes was joined by directors of the CIA, FBI, NSA, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. The intelligence chiefs added that threats transcending borders, including climate change, health security, and rapidly changing technology, are facing the United States in the year to come. And breaking news from Ukraine. Russia has unleashed a missile barrage across Ukraine targeting energy facilities. Air raid sirens wailed across the country, now facing a second year of war with invading Russian troops. More waves of attacks from Russian forces are expected, say government officials. Missile attacks against Ukraine began in October, plunging the country into darkness on numerous occasions. Meanwhile, last week at the G20 summit in Delhi, Russia's foreign minister was interrupted by laughter from some nations as he defended Moscow's reasons for the invasion, they call a special military operation, to liberate the Donbass region of Ukraine. Lavrov was undaunted. He says the opposition to Russia originates with threats by Washington. The developing world basically was silent until the West started blackmailing them, threatening them, sanctioning those who who wouldn't sanction Russia. You know what, many, many friends of, me, of my, uh, mine in the developing world, they're telling me uh, how this is being done. Uh, when the West says, the Americans tell them, uh, you must vote this way uh, or else. And they say, okay, I, I will vote the way you want me because I believe this can be explained by the United Nations Charter and so on and so forth. But what do I get in return? And the answer from the Americans is you would not be punished. Fair deal, very fair deal. Then uh, I have quite a number of friends in New York. And when I was there for the last General Assembly, I talked to them uh, and they were uh, many if not most of them, were saying that they fully understand what is going on and that uh, we should not be angry uh, at the way they vote. Uh, and they told me what arguments the Americans have been using uh, when they persuaded people to vote in the General Assembly against Russia. The arguments are very straight. Don't forget that you have a bank account and such and such bank. And don't forget that your kids uh, go to Stanford, bluntly. And I'm sure that there are many people uh, in this room who know that this is true. Professor of History at the University of Arizona, David Gibbs, says the main threat to the world comes from Washington's escalation of what he calls a proxy war, 
a war that's destroying Ukraine. What I'm seeing is that Russia is taking the strategy of mostly mass destruction of the Ukrainian army with huge horrific loss of life, no doubt, at a distance while it's conserving its own forces. It seems to be avoiding a kind of mass technique of sort of charging forward and sort of more grinding down the Ukrainian army at a distance with huge numbers of artillery shells. In this kind of a war, it'll be very difficult to turn the tide in Ukraine's favor. Until now, Russia had not did not have enough troops on the ground to simply hold the territory they had before. They likely have made up for that by the recent mobilization of, I think, over 300,000 reservists. And they have the capability of bringing more reservists into the field if they have to. They have what has been technically called escalation dominance. They have a greater ability to escalate than Ukraine does. We've seen the terrible destruction they've been bringing on the Ukrainian infrastructure, very unpleasant effects to the civilian population of Ukraine. They could escalate that campaign, I suspect, if they wish to. The term escalation has a very frightening meaning. Escalate, how far could they escalate things and where could they wind up, especially with the U.S., even if it is flagging in its support, definitely out to supply more and more powerful weapons? And more powerful weapons would be problematic. I mean, you've been hearing about the supply of tanks. It's a few hundred tanks. Russia, again, has more tanks than any country on the planet, as with artillery. They're a tank and artillery-oriented military. You can talk of fighter planes, that'll take many, many months or years probably to arrive. What I fear is that the United States and NATO are so committed to this war, so committed to victory. They've ruled out negotiation as an option repeatedly. They've blocked negotiation in March. We, we have a good record of that. It's going to be very difficult for the United States to accept defeat. And so what I fear is this could escalate into nuclear war very easily. What is the real threat of nuclear war here? Leon Panetta, the former director of the CIA, had said in Politico that the CIA estimates the chance of nuclear war, this was writing in September, at 20 to 25 percent. Uh, that's a very high risk. And we're talking here about a nuclear war that could easily escalate into destroying the entire planet. Russia and the United States have 1,600 each nuclear warheads that are active. That's very disturbing. What should the people do? What should America and Russia do, in your opinion? Well, I think the first thing we have to ask, is it worth risking the destruction of the human race over who controls contested regions of eastern and southern Ukraine? Because that's what we're talking about here. That really is the stakes. This was a provoked war. Anybody who looks at the record can see that NATO expansion provoked the war uh, and violated an agreement not to expand NATO. The hope would be that the public would start to wake up to it, that this is not in their interest. Nuclear war, there's the issue, there's a lowering everybody's living standards because the economic sanctions seem to have hurt the United States and its allies and the whole world more than it's hurt Russia. The message you get, maybe half the country has been won over to the idea that the United yeah. States, yeah. by helping these poor Ukrainians from this massive Russian juggernaut, whether that's true or not, that's in the public realm. Every time this goes to war, every single time, always World War II all over again. Whatever enemy we face, it's always Adolf Hitler. We do that every time. And I think the public really should become very suspicious of this, this continuous invocation of this one analogy. is so overused that we should really drop it at this point. Ukraine should really seek some kind of accommodation with Russia. They had the opportunity themselves. They refused, essentially, to implement regional autonomy. They 
the Minsk That's employees. right, Minsk 1 and 2, that's right. Kuleba, the foreign minister, said just before the war started, Ukraine will not alter its centralist policy and allow regional autonomy for the Donbass region. They didn't have to do that. They could have signed an agreement not to move into NATO. Instead, they put NATO membership as a goal in their constitution in 2019. A lot of mistakes were made here. A lot of mistakes were made by Zelensky, who was originally elected as a peace candidate, who promised to make peace with Russia, and then went back on that a campaign promise. A lot of mistakes were made here. Certainly, Russia made a catastrophic mistake in invading. There's no doubt about that. And they could be condemned for that, but they're far from the only villains in this. David Gibbs is professor of history at the University of Arizona. Retired Army Colonel Gregory Dattis teaches Cold War history at West Point. He served 26 years in the U.S. Army and was stationed in Iraq. Dattis says sometimes a kind of war fever grips politicians facing overwhelming problems. In history, there there seems to be times where policymakers start thinking that war will become inevitable, which is I think is really dangerous, right? If you look at the conversations that are occurring with China right now, there's there's so many commentators out there offering the the assumption that war with China is inevitable. And I think that is just incredibly dangerous thinking that just because you're competing with somebody on a you know regional international basis doesn't mean there's automatically going to be an inevitable conflict in the future. So I think with Ukraine, we need to be really careful about um, those types of arguments where we're inevitably going to be drawn in. There's a whole host of decisions to be made from moving forward, and, and I'm hoping that the Biden administration will continue to be extremely careful about supplying Ukraine, but also the ways in which it supplies Ukraine to ensure that we don't get drawn in. Right. And, you know, I speaking just to make the connection, during the Vietnam era, you had a lot of other things happening. You had the uh, the, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. You had mm-hmm. uh, uprisings in countries all over the world, Chile and different places. But somehow we got out of it. We managed to talk to these people. What's the f- difference now? How come we can't talk to the Russian people the way we could talk to the Soviet Union and, and work out something back then? The lines of communication are still open. Folks in our military establishment at the senior levels at the Joint Chiefs level are still conversing with their counterparts in Russia. The challenge now compared to the Vietnam era is that there was a, especially when the Nixon administration came on board in 1969, there was a consensus on both sides that that conversation needed to be happening. These kind of key events that are happening in 1968 in Czechoslovakia and Vietnam, in the United States, there's momentum on both sides to have conversations to enter into this period of detente. And I'm not so sure that's the case right now. I, I don't think that Putin um, is all that interested in talking with the West. There's clearly a, a whole host of bad assumptions that he made going into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. There's a concern here about entering into conversations while sanctions are being employed, while his forces are even if they are in this long war of attrition, which I assume will continue for at least some time, the news hasn't been all that positive in terms of how the Russian military forces have performed. It seems whenever you attack or invade another country, you're at a disadvantage as far as your morale versus the morale yeah. of the defender. There's no such thing as an easy war. Putin assumed that the war was going to be quick, that the population would, would ultimately cede to Russian military power, and that hasn't been the case. And so policymakers making assumptions about the use of military force and and how quickly that military force will achieve political objectives 
we're seeing over and over and again how those assumptions are faulty. And, and so we should take a hard look at, at this Russian military experience, compare it to our own in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and I think rethink some of our core assumptions about applying military force overseas and assuming that force is going to achieve your political objectives. Is it possible to have economic prosperity in the United States without grabbing imperialistically territory from somebody else's zero-sum game they've been paying for 100 years since World War One. Right. We have to rethink some basic relationships within our country. I think if you go back to the Eisenhower era, questioning some of these key relationships or inherent relationships between the military-industrial complex, those are still present today, right? Um, there's a lot of money to be made by high defense budgets that support an aggressive interventionist foreign policy. Call out these powerful industrialists, Raytheon, this super rich, right. like Tony Stark type guy who runs everything. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah um, and that's the challenge, right? And part of it is, you know, I live in San Diego. There are lots and lots of families here whose lives would be shattered if the defense industry collapsed because there was a change in, in policy. And so that's the challenge I think we have to get through. It's not just the industrialists. It's also the large sectors of the American economy who depend upon these inordinate defense budgets. To reshape those relationships, I think, are incredibly difficult to do, but important if we're going to break this cycle that we have of just continuing to be interventionists to support economic policies at home. Retired Army Colonel Gregory Dattis teaches Cold War history at West Point. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In local news, climate activists from the organization New York Communities for Change crashed a closed-door Citibank conference at a Midtown hotel. They were demanding the multinational banks stop investing in fossil fuels. The protesters confronted Citibank CFO Mark Mason as protesters held signs reading climate emergency and stop funding coal. And another activist read a statement from an indigenous leader in Peru who says their land has been endangered by Citibank. Oil from the Amazon is shipped by pipeline to the refinery and from there is shipped to consumers in North America, Asia, and Europe. Petro Peru, who is one of Citibank's clients, is responsible for operating the pipeline that transports oil from the Amazon to the coastal ports from where it is exported. In total, this pipeline that Citibank has financed has had 427 oil spills. There are more than 2,000 contaminated sites that have not been remediated. The world was able to see a sample of this. Citibank is the largest foreign bank funding state-run oil companies throughout South America. In Peru, Citibank is supporting a project that would expand oil production into indigenous lands. And finally, Fox News commentator and self-styled entertainer Tucker Carlson used his widely watched program this week to recast the January 6, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol as tourism and not an act of violence. These are the pictures you've seen of January 6th. They're familiar because they've been playing on a loop on every media outlet in America for the last two years. There's a reason for that. But it turns out there's quite a bit of video you haven't seen. And that video tells a very different story about what happened on January 6th. 
More than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from in and around the Capitol have been withheld from the public. And once you see the video, you'll understand why. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. By controlling the images you were allowed to view from January 6th, they controlled how the public understood that day. Carlson had been handed more than 40,000 hours of security camera video from the January 6th invasion by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Carlson aired the first installment to millions of viewers on Monday, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was having none of it as he accused Tucker of lies. Last night, Fox News, with Speaker McCarthy as a willing, capable, and powerful accomplice, aired one of the most shameful hours we have ever seen in the history, in the entire history of cable television. Tucker Carlson is a propagandist publicly pretending to be a newsman. We know that Fox News knows, that Rupert Murdoch knows, and that he knows that they're liars, that they're propagandists, that they're destroying America for some kind of monetary or other advantage. The Carlson program comes as former President Donald Trump is running again for president, and Fox executives have admitted in court papers they knowingly spread false assertions by Trump he had won the 2020 election. Numerous Republicans have spoken out against Carlson, saying they felt unsafe as hundreds of angry Trump supporters searched a building threatening the lives of government officials, said a minority leader, Mitch McConnell. My uh, concern is how it was depicted, which is a different issue. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. The sentiment was echoed in a more lively fashion by late-night talk show host Stephen Colbert. There's a whole industry of people who make a good living trying to make you think you're insane. Well, I make a very good living reminding you that you're not. Now, you'd think, you would think, you think that once the people gaslighting you on a daily basis have been revealed to be liars, say, in multiple text messages in a $1.6 billion court filing by Dominion Voting Systems, they would pump the brakes. But apparently, some people are just addicted to being dicks. <laughs> Case in point, Fox News host and, and toddler sucking on a dog turd, Tucker Carlson. And that's late-night talk show host Stephen Colbert. Trump on Tuesday contended that Carlson's presentation was irrefutable evidence. Rioters have been wrongly accused of crimes, and he thanked the host and the Speaker of the House for their work. And that's the news of Thursday morning, March 9, 2023. The news produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>